Hi, everybody. Peter Sankoff here for the Paw and Order team. I'm sorry to report that this is one of the first podcasts where we have actually had some technical difficulties. That's why we couldn't get it out on schedule. And that's why today you're going to be hearing a bit of an abbreviated version of the podcast that Camille and I recorded a couple of weeks ago. Unfortunately, for reasons we still don't understand, a short portion of the podcast, about 10 minutes, um, had a significant technical difficulty and simply cannot be heard. So what we've decided to do, rather than completely scrap the podcast, is we are going ahead with what we think was a really good podcast. We have a very special interview with uh, my colleague, Jessica Eisen, and Camille and I got into some really important news that we want to share with you, even if it's a little bit dated, because we did record it uh, about a week and a half ago. So here's what the way this is going to work. Um, the first 25 minutes or so of the podcast are fine, and then when they're, uh, the glitch actually takes place, I'll come back in with a bit of an audio explanation of what you missed and unfortunately what we couldn't, uh, we weren't able to recover. And at that point, the, the, luckily for us, the audio did come back in. We lost about 10 minutes and we are able to complete the rest of the podcast. And luckily, because I know you're all worried, Heroes and Zeros was preserved. So um, I apologize for any errors. We're going to be back this week, um, at the end of this week, hopefully with our regularly scheduled podcast. Podcast, but we didn't want to throw this one away. There's simply too much good stuff and too much important stuff in there. So sorry about the error. We hope it doesn't happen again. And we hope you enjoy the podcast anyway. In the Canadian justice system, animals' interests are rarely represented. But the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. Episode 21 of Paw and Order. I'm your host, Camille Labchuk, joined with my co-host, Peter Sankoff. Hi, Peter. Hey, Camille. We have a really special episode for you guys, too, because uh, we have some exciting news that we're going to announce in a minute. And we also have a really cool interview with Professor Peter Sankoff's new colleague, Professor Jessica Eisen. And Jess, uh, and I can call her that because she's a friend of mine, too, is uh, doing quite a lot of really interesting research on animals in the law. And you spoke to, sat down with her and spoke to her about some of her research on constitutional protections for animals, I understand. Yes, I did. And it was really exciting. I'm looking forward to uh, sharing that interview with you. We talked about the way in which animal interests can be uh, protected in the Constitution and what that means uh, for animals around the world. And it was just a great chance to uh, uh, speak with Jessica and sort of welcome her to the Pawn Order universe because we're so excited that she's doing work with us uh, here in Canada. So that is our main topic to the day. And we'll get to that in due course. But first, it gives me no small amount of pleasure to note that today's episode of Pawn Order is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, our first sponsor, Camille. Woohoo! Thank you, The Grinning Goat. This is so exciting. Uh, we have been pumping up the idea for weeks now that you might hear something from a sponsor pretty soon, and now we finally have one. Yes, it is The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique. We are... Uh, 
unbelievably excited about having the Grinning Goat. Uh, they they really match our values. We talked about them a, a few weeks back when we were talking about the fact that they named some boots um, after all the members of the, uh, uh, the um, not the Pawn Order team, the Animal Justice team. And we were incredibly honored by that. And we, we quickly reached out to them to try and uh, uh, get them as our primary sponsor on uh, Pawn Order. And I'll tell you, now that I have all this extra pull um, with the Grinning Goat, Camille, my, my first goal is going to... I love the Grinning Goat, but they, they made a mistake when they were naming the boots. Like... They 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 called the Peter boot the Nick boot, and I think that was a mistake. So I'm gonna launch a campaign to get the Nick boot renamed the Peter boot because that's the boot I actually wear. Yeah, you re- really feel like those boots represent your individual personality, Peter. I can tell. Well, and I have seen those boots, and they do suit you very well. So I think that's reasonable. And you know, actually, I bought a pair of the boots too, but I didn't buy the Camille boots. I bought the Sarah boots, which are named after. Uh, Sarah Jansen, our event organizer. So maybe I should start a similar campaign. But joking aside, we are so excited that the Grinning Goat is on board. And uh, we love the store. I've loved the store since before that they were a sponsor and before I knew they named Boots after us. They have an amazing selection of animal-free footwear, bags, clothing, candles, uh, housewares, and all sorts of other apparel. Uh, The cool thing about Grin and Goat is that, well, they have a storefront in Calgary and they are based there. And I'm actually going to go there in a couple weeks because I'm going to Banff for a conference. Uh, Not only do they have a storefront, but they also ship nationwide. So anywhere in Canada, you can order amazing apparel from the Grin and Goat website. Yeah, yeah, and I'll tell you something. I'm also going. I wanted to. I, I think the Grinning Goat uh, uh, people at the Grinning Goat are our listeners of the show. I am also coming out. I'm going to actually get to see the um, the uh, the store front for the first time. Uh, but I've already been online many times, and we should announce that it's www.grinninggoat all one word dot ca. They have free shipping in Canada on any order over a hundred dollar. and they have some incredible stuff. And let's just say, listeners, I'm assuming there are listeners. I can't be sure, but Camille tells me we have listeners. I hear from the odd person who says there are listeners. I'm going to assume for the moment there are lots of listeners. And let me just say to all you listeners out there, it's time for you to do something for us. Wouldn't you agree, Camille? We've provided them with 21 episodes of wonderful free entertainment. Now we need you to do something for us. And let me just tell you, you're not doing something just for us. You get to benefit in the bargain. You can do all your Christmas shopping and all these things that you want to get from the Grinning Goat. And the reason we want you to do that is if we can demonstrate proof of concept and show that we can drive businesses to uh, business to vegan, humane businesses. It's good for everybody concerned and it really helps us support the show. So don't just say you're going to do it. Get out there and do it. And we have an incentive for you to do it, don't we, Camille? We sure do. Grinning Goat is offering an exclusive discount code for Paw and Order listeners. If you enter the code PAW15, that's P-A-W-1-5, you can get 15% at checkout. So anywhere in the country, you can visit them online at grinninggoat.ca, use the code, or if you happen to be in Calgary, you can stop in at their storefront on 17th um, Avenue or Street. I forget which it is, but the, the popular one in, in the south it's, of the city. Street. 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 Good. And yeah. find their amazing selection of cruelty-free apparel. Some of my favorite brands are there. Yeah, it's really fantastic. So needless to say, we are super duper excited um, about every aspect of this relationship with the Grinning Goat. And uh, again... 
listeners, I, I'm I'm not going to tell you twice. Like this is the way that we can, you know, you can make a difference to Paw and Order. And if you think about it, this is one of the easiest ways to really help the animal justice cause, and that is by really supporting our sponsors. That's the best way uh, to make it happen. So we are super duper excited. Let's make it happen, Paw and Order listeners. Uh, make them so support them so much that. Uh, um, um, they just want to keep sponsoring us forever. And I, I should add, Camille, that I've just checked the website. It is 17th Avenue in Calgary. The oh. show notes said 17th Street, but it is 17th Avenue Southwest in Calgary. And I can't wait to visit in late January. I'm going to send a note to the Grinning Goat people and, and tell them I'm on my way uh, in January. Very excited about it. Well, me too. And I actually have a sort of a problem with buying lots of vegan shoes for, for years, Peter. I don't know if you felt the same way, but it was really hard to find leather-free, animal-free, cruelty-free shoes. And now it's not so much of a problem, but I still have this scarcity mentality. So when I see them, I feel like I have to buy them all. So if you're like that too, you might enjoy checking out their apparel. So gradinggoat.ca, paw15 for 15% off at checkout. We're so excited about this partnership and can't wait to hear about uh, your experience with their store. Absolutely. All right, Camille, uh, moving on to other news. Y you never stop, do you? You have just been going like at rapid speed. Camille has just gotten back from a grueling road trip. <laughs> I don't know if it was actually, I thought it's Toronto. Wait, from Ottawa, that is a grueling road trip. You went all the way to St. Catharines, Ontario, all the way on the other side of Toronto. Yeah, it's pretty far. To speak at Brock University. How'd it go? It's like six hours. It was great. So I spoke in uh, Matthew Henniger's political science class. He's teaching about social change strategies involving litigation. And I filled in students about the work that animal justice does. And they had a great conversation about it after. And then I did sort of an evening keynote event discussion about, uh, again, the work that we do and how anyone can play a role in changing the laws for animals, not just lawyers, but that we need a broad base of people who are advocates in their own communities, talking with their MPs and reporting animal cruelty. So it was super fun, Peter, and I'm off shortly to London VegFest. So if you're listening to this before Saturday, November 10th, you can catch me at 2 p.m. speaking at London VegFest on many of those same themes. Fantastic. What else you got going on? I know you're coming out this way, but you will not be seeing me on this visit. You're not quite getting all the way up to Edmonton. No, the next trip, the one where I plan to visit the Grinning Goat, I'm uh, actually on my way to Bant for a, a prosecution, a cruelty prosecution conference, rather. So a really good chance for prosecutors across the country to get together and talk about some of the issues that they face trying to get convictions for animal cruelty and, and bring reasonable, smart, well-thought-out cases. And I'm going to be speaking about the Bogarts case, which we've talked about on this podcast before, but it's the uh, constitutional challenge in Ontario to the authority of the Ontario SPCA to um, do certain things and to be a private charity enforcing public laws. So it should be fun. And uh, Good stuff. Yeah, I hear that you're off on a trip soon too, Peter, and not a work one for a change. No, this is my last day in the frozen tundra of Edmonton. It is ridiculously cold here. It's something like minus eight today, I believe. But uh, oh my I God. am leaving tomorrow. Yeah, crazy. Tomorrow morning, I'm leaving for Mexico uh, on a much-needed vacation. It has been uh, a very long uh, fall, and uh, I'm looking forward to getting out of here. So I'm just getting this pawn order in under the wire before I head off to much sunnier climates. And the only other thing I wanted to report, I, I hadn't even mentioned to you, is that I have agreed to... Um, 
to you know making some animal law uh, uh, in a, in a bigger way. I'm I've agreed to uh, co-write the next edition of the Halsbury's uh, text on animals uh, to, uh, to help them make sure they get it right in reporting all the things we do wrong to our animals in the animal cruelty vein. So that's what I'm oh. going to be doing over the next couple of months. Wow. Well, congrats. That's pretty huge news. Halsbury, for any non-lawyers out there, it's, um, how would you describe it? It's a, sort of a, a legal text that's often the first point of reference for issues. Right. And they've had an animals, uh, they've had an animals uh, volume for a couple of years. I wasn't involved. It's funny, a long time ago, I was supposed to get involved in it with Vaughn Black for their original issue. I think it was in 2011. And we just couldn't get the deal done. It just didn't make sense the way they were proposing it. And I had too many things on the go. And so I was out of that edition. Then I was out of the second edition. And now they've come back to me for like the third reissue. So, so I'm excited. I've looked at it. It's pretty good work. But I, I plan to uh, hopefully, you know, get in my own, you know, way of suggesting that the laws aren't quite what they're supposed to be. It's not really the type of book where you're commenting, but you're trying to at least illustrate some of the shortcomings of the law. So that's what I hope to do. Well, that's really cool. And and a great opportunity to reach mainstream lawyers who don't practice animal law typically on, on these issues. So congrats, Peter. And, uh, you know, another thing that's happening soon, Peter, is you and I get to see each other again for a holiday party in Edmonton on November 29th. Yes. That's right. We are having our first ever Edmonton holiday party. So we're going to post the RSVP link in the show notes, but we'd love to connect with some fellow Pot and Order listeners there. Yeah, we're really excited to see everybody from Edmonton. We have just secured our first sponsor. So we have uh, the wonderful, no surprise, we've talked about them before, the wonderful people at Pabinati have agreed to uh, help support us run our animal uh, justice holiday party. And uh, we have a lot of other sponsors that are just not formally on board yet, but they're, you know, the negotiations are in play. And we are very excited about this party. We're looking forward to seeing uh, people from all across Edmonton. And I, I think possibly, Camille, across the region, because I've noted a few people from Calgary sneaking into that holiday party list. So we're excited to see everybody. Yeah, yeah, all are welcome. And uh, we're not just doing this batch in Edmonton. We've got one November 30th in Vancouver. Again, we'll post the show notes. And I think that's going to be a fabulous event. It always is because the Vancouver advocacy community is just so strong and so great. And then we're taking the show to Toronto the week after on Friday, December 7th, and finishing up with a party in Ottawa, again, for the very first time in Ottawa, my hometown, on December 14th. So we are going to post links to all of those RSVP websites in the show notes. We would love if some or all of you show up and uh, celebrate the year that was with us. The the parties are always a ton of fun. You were at the uh, Toronto one last year, Peter. Yeah, I was. And it was a great time. We should announce, of course, coming to these parties, you get to hobnob with some of the, the animal justice I'd say I'd say famous, but that's that's a stretch of what we are. But it is a good chance to meet the people involved that are at the core of animal justice. And and you should just say that uh, Camille, of course, will be at all four parties. That goes without saying. And I believe our our producer, Shannon Milling, will also be at all four parties. Did I get that right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you're going to probably make your way over to the Vancouver party, too, I understand. 
Yes, the rest of us are splitting the parties, I believe is the best way to put it. But in Vancouver, I'm looking forward to catching up with our, our farm animal welfare specialist. Anna Pippis will be at our Vancouver party. Um, and of course, in uh, Toronto, I guess uh, our usual uh, board of directors crew, Nick Wright and uh, Kimberly Carroll will be there as well. I'm not sure who's coming to Ottawa yet, Camille. Have you figured that out? Yeah. It's just you. Well, you lots, Shannon. lots of special guests and uh, tons of people involved in politics and other exciting things in Ottawa. So please stay tuned. We would love to see you there. And again, check out the RSVP links in the show notes. Fantastic. All right. All right. It has been a very busy week in the news. And um, we we delayed, um, for personal reasons, we delayed uh, recording this part of the show until Wednesday morning. And I'm kind of glad that we did, Camille, because it means we get to report on the very recent U.S. midterm elections that took place yesterday. That's right. And, and you might think, why are the U.S. midterms relevant to an Animal Log podcast? And let me tell you why. There's two really specific reasons. Uh, you know, the overall, it's always good to be keeping our eye on politics and which animal-friendly candidates are elected. But the U.S. also, most or many states have the possibility of putting up ballot initiatives where um, a question for animal protection goes on the ballot for the election, and people statewide can vote to pass a new law or not. And we actually had two really significant ones come out of the U.S. election. So uh, Florida, there was a proposition to ban greyhound racing, so phasing out that quote-unquote sport by the year 2020. And exciting news, Peter, it passed 69% to only 31 So that was a huge victory. I think that's... Uh... I just think that's monumental. I, I can't stress how excited about this I am. I, I have been following the greyhound racing industry for quite some time. Um, when I was in New Zealand, New Zealand doesn't have a greyhound racing industry, but but Australia does. And there have been numerous attempts to get the sport put down. Sorry, bad you know, bad use of words, but to get the sport eliminated um, in Australia. And, and they have really fought hard, advocates in New South Wales. They thought they were very close at one point, and then they just couldn't get it done. And, you know, it's a really weird thing, Camille, because this racing type of activity is a very limited thing. It's not like um, all of society supports greyhound racing, but it's been amazing how difficult it is to get these things shut down and put out of existence, notwithstanding the clear evidence of harm. And in Australia, I saw Expo after expose showing how troublesome this was for the welfare of the dogs. And yet, I was not convinced it was ever going to get banned in Florida. No, it's a, a real uphill batter, battle fighting these sort of culturally, societally entrenched practices like greyhound racing and other forms of entertainment. But I think, Peter, one thing that may have made the difference is just this whole idea of using animals for entertainment purposes is starting to fall by the wayside and it's becoming increasingly socially unacceptable. And when you look at the exposés that have come out, when you look at the fact that dogs are kept in cages for most of the day when they're not being trained, they're pumped full of performance-enhancing drugs, just like the horse racing industry, and so often injured or found dead during races. I think that uh, put it over the top, but it's still a monumental victory. And uh, I noticed in some of the coverage, I, I didn't know this and it surprised me, the NR and their chief lobbyist in Florida, who's quite powerful, were actually lobbying against this passing. So the fact that the NRA actually lost a battle, I think, is just uh, like an enormous win for animal advocates. So bravo to everyone who worked on this. 
Yeah, 70, uh, 70% victory is an incredible victory at the political uh, level. And, and it had to be over 60 to actually pass. That was an important part of uh, referendums in Florida don't get passed on a 51% measure. You need to go over 60. And wh what I think is so important to keep in mind is this may not seem like a big deal in many ways. And we've talked about this before, I think in the context of marine mammals, where we recognize that, you know, Camille and I are not uh, oblivious to the fact that when you're talking about animal issues, it's it's the farm animals that are the real problem. That's where most of the animals are. That's where most of the suffering is. But I have always been on the, of the view that it is very difficult to take on those issues until you can get rid of the issues that are actually much easier to deal with. And I say that if you hearken back to a, a, a podcast I did with uh, Sophie Gaillard, a guest host Sophie Gaillard, on the Menard test, and we talked about the balancing of unnecessary suffering. And one of the challenges in advancing new arguments about why animals should be protected is this idea that unnecessary suffering allows necessary suffering, which is usually defined by human need. And what we were concerned about is the more you recognize that every type of human need, even you know, less important ones than, say, sustenance or, or feeding yourself. And, and, and I recognize, of course, that you don't need animals to feed yourself, but that is the argument that gets put forward. But the concern that I have is if you can't get rid of entertainment as an issue that allows you to harm animals in severe ways, it's very difficult to advance other issues. So I believe that getting a ban of this nature in one of the biggest states, and, and by the way, we haven't mentioned... Florida controls 11 of the 18 racing tracks in the U.S. Like, this is like a slamming blow to the industry in the U.S. as a whole, and I just think that's incredible. I couldn't agree more. It takes a huge chunk out of this horrifically cruel industry. So hats off to everyone who worked on this. And thank you to the voters of California. This was clearly a nonpartisan issue when you look at this margin of victory. People from both sides of the spectrum found something they could agree on here, and I think that's a huge win. Yeah. They are not our hero of the month only because we're spending so much time talking about them. But trust me, Florida voters, for this reason only, you are really a hero in my heart. Yeah, it's really <laughs> confined to this reason. We're not applauding your other political <laughs> let's choices. Just say, let's just say that other other things in Florida did not go quite as well. But otherwise, I'm like, good on you, Florida. Good on you. And you know who else gets some props, Peter? It's California voters for passing Proposition 12. If you pay any attention to animal issues, especially in the States, you will probably have heard about this over the last few months during this election campaign. It uh, is an animal uh, protection proposition that enhances conditions for animals in confinement. So reducing some of the most extreme forms of co confinement of animals on farms. Um, in particular, it provides specific space requirements for egg-laying hens, mother pigs who are being bred, and calves who are being confined for veal. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's it was obviously a big measure, and following up on uh, Proposition Two, which I remember being a massive battle. I lived in New Zealand at the time, but I came back for a conference in two thousand eight before this bill went on the on the ballot, and there was a lot of controversy even back then about the Proposition Two bill, which did get passed and uh, required farmers to allow hens, pigs, and veal calves to at least 
turn around. It was some of a, a sort of an initial measure designed to improve welfare conditions. Yeah, that's right. It was passed in 2008, and it was vociferously fought by the farming industry, but it was overwhelmingly supported by California voters. It didn't provide specific space requirements like Proposition 12 does that was passed this week. And it also didn't apply to any products, any meat or dairy or, or egg products produced outside of the state of California. So somebody who produces this stuff in, say, Missouri can ship it into California and still sell it, even if it doesn't comply with California standards. So what Proposition 12 does to follow up on that and enhance those protections is it bans sales of um, products produced out of compliance with those practices statewide. So you can't import and sell them either. Now, uh, Camille, there was a bit of controversy about Proposition 12. This was, and I say controversy, not in the ordinary sense of the controversy word. Here, if we if we tried to pass Proposition 12 or something along those lines in Canada, oh my God, poor Bob Soapbuck might have a heart attack, literally, about, you know, not being able to feed his family anymore. But we're not talking about the agricultural industry. We're talking about the animal advocates. Yeah, that's right. That's right. It's not just the agriculture industry that was... Um had some issues with this. Some Against animal it. protection yeah. <laughs> organizations did as well. Uh, so, you know, PETA, for instance, released a statement upon the passage of this saying that although they do support um, animal liberation, obviously, that's their, their ultimate goal and the abolition of all animal use. And they also recognize the importance of incremental steps towards achieving that goal, that they still view this as a setback for animals because they don't believe that the space requirements are in any way, quote unquote, humane. So let me just say, I, I'm going to start this with a caveat, and I think you're on the same boat, Camille. About, so, so perhaps we should just start this next section of our discussion with a caveat. I, I've been really busy. We've been busy dealing with Canadian legislative developments like bestiality and, uh, you know, cetaceans and holiday parties. Like there is a lot going on here. And I'm going to tell you, I have not sat down and carefully studied Proposition 12. Is that fair that you're in the same boat, Camille? I am definitely in the same boat. I know the basics from news coverage and from seeing materials from all the animal rights groups in the states that I follow, but that's about it. Yeah, so let me say that I have looked at some of the critique from the animal rights groups, and I, have, I can see that some of the concerns they are raising are things that would concern me as well. Okay, so I will grant that right off the bat. But... Uh, I, I'm not sure I agree with the core of some of their other critique. Like, I read several parts of critique that said, look, 2008 was supposed to fix this, and it hasn't fixed this, so why should we trust the same groups that are trying to put a new proposition forward? And, like, that sort of critique strikes me as completely just insane. Like, it doesn't actually make any sense. Like, the idea that 2008 didn't get it right, like, duh! Right. We've we've seen over and over again that if you put in vague measures like enough space to turn around, it's it's not going to give the animals enough space to turn around. And the idea that you shouldn't, you know, provide them with numbers that are completely unfair, this like one foot of space that is supposed to be available for, for hens, one square foot of space, that's not enough. Well, I get it. I totally get it. Like what they're trying to do is put together a political compromise that will allow the status quo to remain in place for a certain period of time. It strikes me as nonsensical to critique them because especially like I couldn't understand how the animal rights groups were essentially saying reject the measure 
you know, because these these limits are not good ones. And I'm like, well, what happens if you reject the measure? Like, I don't understand what it is you think you're gaining by rejecting the measure. If you want to reject the measure because, you know, like philosophically, we cannot support any use um, short of freedom. Okay, like I understand that philosophically, that makes sense. But when you're just saying you're objecting because the, the, the changes that are being proposed aren't good enough, you can certainly you know, make those cases. But why would you ask for rejection when the alternative is, is a situation that's that's arguably worse? Yeah, for sure. And what's exciting about this whole idea of these ballot initiatives is that Californians are clearly really uh, interested in passing progressive measures. So what stops you from going back next time with something even better and pushing the envelope even further? And unfortunately, it's at that point that everything went awry. So you're not going to be able to hear my long response about what uh, Proposition 2 actually does. Camille and I talked quite a bit about our concerns um, with, with uh, some of the critique that had been made. And we then go on to talk about how some of this works in Canada. And unfortunately, uh, it's all been lost due to a technical uh, difficulty. Um, we also lost a wonderful story about some work, uh, some changes that are happening to the Ontario SPCA um, in that the Ontario SPCA now refuses to prosecute farm animal cases and cases involving horses. And Camille and I talked about why we thought that was actually a pretty positive development in a lot of ways and may spur a change in the way in which prosecutions in this country take place. Unfortunately, that's all been lost too, but we plan to revisit that discussion in a future episode of Paw and Order. So I will let you get on with the rest of this episode that I do think uh, is still worth listening to. And speaking of changes, we've got word from uh, my old home in New Zealand of some uh, pretty exciting news of another way in which uh, a group along the lines of animal justice is trying to make change for animals. That's right. So our counterparts down there at the New Zealand Animal Law Association have filed their very first prosecution, private prosecution, against a rodeo. So it's in relation to a man who used an electric shocker in the course of a rodeo event on some calves and some cows. And there's a video that accompanies this that uh, was reported on by the news media in New Zealand and, and depicted what he was actually doing. And it's pretty appalling and obviously causes a lot of pain and distress to the uh, victims of the electric shocker. So it's exciting to see that they have uh, gotten this together to file private charges against this man. Um, unlike in Canada, where SPCAs investigate offenses and perhaps lay charges, but then public prosecutors take over, animal offenses in New Zealand, and correct me if I'm in any way misstating this, Peter, but my understanding is that it's completely done by the uh, RSPCA, which is um, private. With the exception of, uh, like us, they have a CFIA that does some investigations for the Ministry of Primary Industries. So they do do some agricultural offenses through the ministry. But other than that, you're correct, Camille. It's 100% uh, investigated and prosecuted by SPCAs. And in case you're wondering, Camille, that works out about as well as you'd think it would work out. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, at the summer school I went to at Oxford University this year, we, we had a, a lot of people from New Zealand there, and we were all sharing and all these ideas about private prosecutions and investigations and discussing the same issues that we're facing in, in Canada, they're dealing with there. So uh, it's kind of cool to see an animal law group spring up like this and take this issue on. I think we're going to hear more details about this in the coming months as it proceeds, and we'll definitely keep you posted. Yes, I think there's lots of news about New Zealand coming in the next couple of weeks, Camille, but we'll just hold it there for now.
We'll leave it at that for now. <laughs> All right. That is our news segment of the day. We are now uh, very, very, very excited to uh, turn to our main topic, which is a discussion that I had a little while ago with Jessica Eisen, professor at the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. Okay, I'm here today with a very special guest, my colleague at the University of Alberta Faculty of Law. We've talked about her on the show. We've made reference to her on the show multiple times. And here we are. We are pleased to welcome to Pawn Order for the first time, Jessica Eisen. Thanks for having me, Peter. We are delighted to have you. Unfortunately, Camille couldn't be here. She's off in some other city somewhere. So here we are in Edmonton, you know, as I like to call it, the animal law capital of the world, <laughs> the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. We have two, two professors working on animal law issues, which I think is fairly rare, Jessica. That I think that's right. Coming up on three, if you can't, Cam Jeffries has done some work on shark finning. We kind of count Cam Jeffries. Cam Jeffries is like a half. So it's sort of <laughs> okay. like two and a half because he's only interested in sharks and whales. So we have to get him interested in the whole spectrum of animals before we can call him an animal law professor. Isn't that fair? Okay. But then we can at least call it 2.5. <laughs> so, uh, Jessica, welcome. Um, you know, maybe I'll start with asking, uh, you, you've come to the Faculty of Law at the University of Alberta. How's it going so far? It's going great. I am having a fabulous time. Uh, I'm teaching constitutional law, which uh, is a real thrill for me. It's an area of law that I uh, care a lot about, and I'm excited to kind of teach a whole generation of new law students to care about it as much as I do, and so far as I can. It's always our hope, Jessica. It's always, it's always, the always hope. our hope. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think they'll ever care quite as much as you do, but we can, we can try. We can try. Okay. Um, that's, that's great. I'm glad you're enjoying it so far. I should point out that as Jessica is saying, she's enjoying it. The winter really hasn't set in yet, Jessica. Are you a little nervous about that? Well, we did have a September snowfall and that was a bit of a shock to my Toronto raised system. Uh, I was not prepared for that. I sent a lot of, uh, photos home to my disbelieving friends in Toronto uh, but so I, I feel like I got an early taste of the fact that this is actually a different climate, uh, and I am bracing myself, trying to get all the right gear, uh, so that I'm not too taken by surprise when the weather turns, as I hear it will. In fairness, since then, we've had some actually some pretty nice weather, but that's, you know, it might not hold. Yeah, I'm being back in my fall jacket, which is nice. And before I, uh, before I, I, I get into the actual talking about important things like your legal research, I... I thought it was only listeners have heard me talk about Edmonton being a much stronger vegan food scene than people believe. I personally have said, and this is a controversial statement, <laughs> I actually think it's the number three city for vegan food in the country. I actually think it goes, I mean, Toronto's mm -hmm. number one, yeah. and I think Montreal is number two, but I actually have found that in terms of quality and variety, I think it's better than Vancouver. I certainly think it's better than Ottawa, but mm -hmm. I, I actually just think there's just so many good offerings on board so i mean what is were you surprised or pleasantly surprised by the vegan food availability here i was extremely pleasantly surprised i uh don't think i really had much of a point of reference about what edmonton was going to be like at all my first time coming to edmonton was when i came out here for my job interview uh so it was a real complete unknown to me and i was amazed by how great the vegan food was it was i think uh 
you all took me to Padmanati for for dinner that night. I and think it there's was... a picture on the wall there. I think yep. that might have come up in an episode. Yeah, maybe two. Uh, maybe they're going to be your uh, restaurant sponsor. <laughs> could for the be, pod. could be, could but be. But yeah, no, I and I, since then I've been loving mosaics. I go there mm. anytime I can. And mm. uh, there's yeah, nourish. There's just a lot that's even right within walking distance. And, and four or five that I bet you haven't been to yet because they've opened up so recently. I can't so, yeah, keep it's up. Really something. Yeah, I'm really fi- something. I'm finding I can't keep up not only because there's so many opening. But also because every time I go somewhere, it becomes my new favorite, and I find it hard to tear myself away to try something new. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay, Jessica. Um, you know we know each other a bit. We've been you've been here a bit. But why don't you introduce yourself to your listeners? Tell them about your background, sort of what led you here to U of A. Sure. So I uh, did my law degree at U of T, which is a, a fond source of many pawn order. Uh, guests and hosts. Yeah, it's a hotbed. Apparently, <laughs> it's it a is. Hotbed. It is. You have to. Admit, sorry, I'm already getting off topic. But it, we've we've talked about it before. It's a weird quirk. Yeah. That mo- many, and certainly not all, but a, a, a disproportionate number of the people who've gotten into animal law in this country have come out of U of T, and I'm not really sure why. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you wouldn't necessarily expect it, mm-hmm. um, but. Yeah, I, I did my degree at University of Toronto, and it was the first year that animal law was offered as a course there. Uh, I took animal law with Leslie Bisgould. Uh, at the time, though, it didn't occur to me that that was something I could make a career of. It was an interest, but uh, I primarily was studying constitutional law and equality law in particular. Uh, I practiced law in those areas for a few years after I graduated. Um, and I found that for a number of reasons, I yearned to get back to academic work. Uh, and I did initially start initially, uh, studying equality law questions. Uh, but when I decided to kind of take the plunge and do my doctorate in hopes of being a teacher, uh, I could not resist the idea of taking on an animal law topic for my doctoral research. Uh, I thought, you know, if I'm leaving a law firm job to kind of take a chance on a career that I feel more passionately about, I should go all in. Uh, and so I uh, enrolled in a doctoral program where, with the intention to study animals in the law. Uh, and since then, it has been an amazing journey. I've had a stunning amount of support. I got to witness the Harvard Animal Law and Policy Program cropping up before my eyes uh, with me just happening to be in the right time at the right place. Seriously, uh, that's quite, yeah. <laughs> quite fortunate. You were at Harvard to do your doctoral work and suddenly that program just sort of burst into life. As yeah. Wow, that's yeah. amazing. It was unbelievable. So a uh, huge amount of institutional support for what I was doing. It was really great. And uh, and I, you know, I, I did some research on constitutional animal protection that we'll talk about, some work on the Animal Welfare Act in the United States, uh, the relationship between democracy and animal protection, uh, and I'm right now doing research on uh, milk and American law, and uh, that pretty much takes us to the present moment when I uh, joyfully join the faculty at University of Alberta, Faculty of Law, and I have again found a huge amount of support for animal law here. When they put up my job announcement, they did not hide it under a bushel. They declared that I was here to do animal law, which was a really exciting thing for me because when I started down this path, I didn't know how marketable I was going to be as a law professor, but this was my focus. So things have changed a lot in the last few years. No question. No question. Now, before I leave that, um, you mentioned, of course, you're at uh, Toronto. Did you did you happen to overlap with um, 
as we refer to her on the show, the award-winning Camille Labchuk. <laughs> did you did you overlap with her there? I think that the award-winning Camille Labchuk and I have determined that she started right after I left. Okay. So we we did not overlap, but I did overlap with the I am certain soon to be award-winning, if not already, Anna Pippis. Okay. Oh, yeah. right, because that must have been her first yeah. year. Er, her first year with. Yeah, I think she year. was a first year yeah. when I was in third okay. year. Yeah, I think that's right. Okay, wonderful. Okay, well, let's talk a little bit more about your research. I know you have done, um, you've specialized, or you, you've certainly done a fair bit of work on constitutional issues involving animals, and I, I think in particular uh, constitutional protections for animals. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. So I came into this area uh, because I was planning on doing an element of my doctoral research on constitutional animal protection provisions. Uh, And this was mostly because I was hoping to look at sort of different institutions of the state and how they respond to the problems of animal protection. Uh, And I was aware that Germany, for example, had constitutional animal protection provision in Switzerland, uh, but I didn't at all have a sense of how widespread a phenomenon this was and how diverse the jurisdictions were that had gone ahead with this. And I started together with Professor Kristen Stilt at Harvard uh, doing a research project for an encyclopedia, just sort of basically canvassing what the jurisdictions were that had these constitutional animal protections were, what they had in common, and what was different between them. And what we found was a truly fascinating picture of what's going on Uh, in a bunch of countries that you would not link together in a list for any other reason. Uh, There's, you know, India has a longstanding constitutional animal protection provision. Germany and Switzerland, as I mentioned. Uh, Brazil has a constitutional protection that uh, calls upon the government to prevent cruelty to animals. Slovenia, Austria, Luxembourg... Uh, the European Union, uh, some consider a constitutional jurisdiction. It's a bit of an iffier question. And Egypt has a constitutional animal protection provision. Uh, and we found that there was a huge amount of variety, not just in terms of the type of legal systems involved, uh, but also how these protections were being instantiated. So you had some jurisdictions where a constitutional animal protection was accompanied by a very robust legal scheme on the ground, uh, like you see in Germany. But then there were other jurisdictions like Egypt where this provision uh, sort of hasn't been supported by uh, by a regulatory edifice. Uh, and so it didn't feel like there was a huge connection necessarily, although empirical research would be needed to prove it, that it didn't seem like there's an obvious connection between the existence of these provisions and what the lives of animals mm. uh, actually looked like on the ground. But nonetheless, the very fact that in this sort of period of a few decades, this huge, you know, there's a a large number of diverse jurisdictions have uh, one way or another taken this up. And it it felt like something that deserved being sort of named and identified as a phenomenon and explored a little bit more. So let's just take it back a bit. I want to come back to talking about the constitutional protections, but perhaps you can give a lot of our listeners don't have a lot of legal background or training. And perhaps you can give like some understanding to what's the significance of having a constitutional protection for animals? Why is that so different from other types of protection? 
That's a really great question. Uh, and the lawyer's favorite answer is that it's complicated. <laughs> and it depends. Uh, there are some jurisdictions where uh, constitutional animal protection means a great deal. And there are others uh, where in terms of sort of the payout, in terms of on the ground animal protection, it doesn't mean a huge amount. And this is partly because constitutions actually can mean very different things depending mm. on where they're situated uh, in the sort of broader scheme of the legal structure of the country. So, for example, Switzerland has a constitutional animal protection provision, but the Swiss constitution is very frequently amended. Uh, it's not an unusual thing for a political issue that's attracting a lot of attention to wind up finding that it has a constitutional amendment. And... Uh, you know, this is very different from what listeners in Canada might be used to, where we've seen, you know, efforts at constitutional reform frequently failing and very infrequent amendments actually made to our constitution. So the idea that the constitution is sort of this fixed document that structures uh, everything over a huge period of time isn't actually the case in every jurisdiction. So in order to understand what the significance is of making a constitutional protection for animals, uh, you need to understand what the significance of the Constitution is in the specific context. Right. And obviously the extent to which the Constitution is amendable. Those are the... Right. Yeah, I like to say that uh, despite the best efforts of animal justice, we won't be seeing animal protections in Canadian constitutional law anytime soon. The main reason being that I'm... I'm not confident we'll see any changes to Canada's constitutional yeah. <laughs> structure anytime soon. I think I think at the level of text, that's definitely true. I think that one of the things that's interesting to think about is, well, not every constitution changes just by changes to the text. Interpretation can be a huge driver of constitutional change. And when I think about what it would look like for animal interests to be recognized in Canadian constitutional law, if I maybe do a little bit of a detour into sure. Canadian constitutional law. Uh, so in Canada, the way that our Charter of Rights operates is human beings uh, have rights that are granted by the Constitution. But the Constitution also says that the government has the ability to limit the exercise of human rights in circumstances where the limit on rights is justifiable for a pressing and substantial reason. Uh, and we don't have a case yet where the court has really grappled with the question of whether animal protection is the kind of pressing and substantial objective that justifies the limitation uh, of rights. For example, freedom of expression is a right that could come in con conflict with. Or freedom of religion. Or freedom yeah. of religion. There are all kinds of situations where uh, and Germany is a jurisdiction where this has come up a lot, where uh, the more expansively human rights are defined, the more likely they are to touch on the interests of animals. And so I think if we are to see constitutional animal protection appear in Canada, it will be in the form of the courts recognizing that the interests of animals are the kind of thing for which we might curb 
an expansively defined right. Yeah, I know. I think that's interesting. It's not quite the same thing as a right, but it, it would at least right. recognize that the government would have the ability to limit rights where animal interests are concerned. And in many ways, that would be a powerful statement in and of itself. Yeah, I think that's right. But absolutely, you're right. A textual provision added to the Canadian Constitution on animals feels far off. Well, nor do I see, for example, I, w I was thinking, A, in terms of amendment, uh, nor do I see, for example, the terms everyone or things yes. like that <laughs> being interpreted in a way that, you know, recognizes certain yeah. types of animals. I, I just don't see that in the future. It does not feel likely here, although that interpretive move has been made in India. Yeah. Around the right to life. No question. Well, maybe that's a good way to segue because I want to talk about that a little bit. I was thinking maybe, I mean, we're not going to go through every constitutional provision, but could you give us a sense of, you know, one or two of the more interesting constitutional provisions that you found and, and explain sort of how they're worded and what that has meant in those countries? Yeah. So I think uh, one of, uh, I'll start with India since uh, we just sort of segued there naturally anyway. Uh, so, as I mentioned, India has expansively defined uh, the right to life, not as protecting animals against being slaughtered, uh, but as ensuring a certain quality of life, uh, particularly at the level of species. Uh, but that was sort of just a, a gloss or interpretation on uh, a right that wasn't obviously created specifically for humans or sorry, for animals. Uh, but what is really interesting about the Indian constitution is that it, it includes a provision that requires that every citizen has a duty of compassion for living creatures. And there's a lot from to a lawyer's eye that is interesting about that. A lot. It's very different. Uh, our, our constitution doesn't speak of duties. I know that uh, some do. The, I thought the UN Charter does, and certain other documents talk about duties and obligations. But that's a difference to begin with, but it's an interesting one. It's an interesting one, and in that it places the duty on every citizen. It's not just a duty on the state, although the court has construed the phrase every citizen to include the state. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the idea here is that every citizen has a duty of compassion. Again, the idea of compassion as a constitutional value feels very different than what we mm. see here in Canada. Um, and the notion of living creatures, uh, you know, with the idea of sort of life and creatureliness being in the constitutional document as a source of uh, connection and obligation. Uh, and it's it, it is interesting because in it for a number of reasons, but the unusual element of having a constitutional duty is particular to the history of this provision and a sort of set of duties that was actually imposed during a uh, authoritarian moment in India's history. And so it's part of a package of amendments, many of which have actually subsequently been declared to themselves contravene basic constitutional principles uh, within India. So uh, this idea of constitutional duties has not been without its difficulties, but this duty uh, and some of the others that were introduced at the same time have come to take on uh, a significant role in constitutional interpretation uh, in that country. And the way that it has tended to be employed has been in the interpretation of legislation. Uh, so not necessarily sort of uh, creating a freestanding duty, 
but as a gloss through which we understand, for example, their uh, Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act. So could you give an example of a, because I, I understand there have been cases, this has actually been litigated. Uh, can you give an example of a case where the duty came up? Yeah, so one of the most controversial and interesting cases where it's come up have been uh, relating to a sort of public spectacle called the Jelly Katu, uh, where uh, a bull or oxen is sort of driven through the streets and subject to uh, pretty awful treatment. Uh, there's the prevention of cruelty to animals uh, legislation was found by an administrative agency uh, to have been contravened by this activity. And essentially, uh, the Supreme Court endorsed the finding that this was uh, a contravention of the legislation. And in doing that, they relied on the constitutional animal protection provision, uh, pointing to the duty of compassion for living creatures as sort of adding a constitutional gloss or dimension to this otherwise ordinary statute. Uh, it should be noted that this was extremely controversial, that this uh, was seen by many people as uh, a sort of intervention by the elites into a local cultural practice. Sounds familiar for the history of animal law. Absolutely, absolutely. And I think this is something that I uh, have tried to emphasize in my own work, that, Mm. you know, it's easy if you are interested in improving the circumstances of animals to kind of grab at any foothold that feels politically convenient. Uh, but in many, many unfortunate circumstances that has led animal advocates to uh, attach themselves to sort of to causes that are tied up with minority persecution uh, that find other audiences. Uh, in Europe, some of the sort of outrage about halal slaughter seems to have some of that tinge to it that yeah. Uh, that I think animal advocates should be cautious when uh, peop- when sort of constituencies who are not normally on the uh, side of uh, protection of the vulnerable find themselves rallying around an animal protection cause. Sometimes it's because there is actually some other minority group that they are that they have their sights on. And yeah. this was the charge in the Indian Jalikatu case. Uh, that charge has been made in a number of jurisdictions and other contexts as well. Yeah, it happens a lot. I mean, although sometimes it does lead to greater change, I I never forget, because it was one of the first things I learned about animals, when I went back and looked at some of the first animal law statutes in in the UK, uh, the the campaign against bull baiting, uh, Mm -hmm. the the discussion around that was the same. It was a persecution of a minority. There was was no question that some of the politicians driving this were doing it for law and order purposes. It didn't really have anything to do with animals. But the animal movement sort of grabbed onto them. The bill failed, but eventually they got enough momentum to get a more general statute. So I don't know what the lessons are, but I've always found that interesting. No, it is really interesting. And I mean, my own view is that uh, it's not just unpalatable because it puts us in league with causes that mm-hmm. uh, might might be distasteful. Uh, to me personally, they are. I'm not assuming that everyone who believes in animal protection shares my whole package of political values but for me minority persecution is uncomfortable it's not something that I uh, want to align myself with Uh, but also I think it's not good for animal protection as a cause because it encourages a focus on practices that people think of as being extreme or things that they're not involved Mm -hmm. with 
when in fact I think that the scale of animal agriculture, just the sort of basic way that our my, our majority institutions interact with animals, uh, cause a sort of scale of devastation that are much worse than sort of some practice that catches public attention right. because it's unusual. So if we want to kind of laser focus our reform efforts on structural change that's really going to make a difference for a lot of animals, and I think these, uh, you know, sort of focus on a unusual minority practice that's likely to cause, uh, you know, people with kind of... Uh, parochial or uh, parochial views to also be upset uh, that that's doesn't feel to me like the right path. Mm. Yeah, I agree. Um, what, what could you give us another example of another country that uh, interested you in terms of the constitution? Uh, sure. So I think the German experience is a really instructive one. Close to my heart, of course, but yes. <laughs> Go ahead. Uh, so the, the German... People don't know that. Sorry. I, I, yeah, I probably should explain because I say close to my heart. <laughs> So uh, I spend a lot of time in Germany because my wife is German, my kids speak German, I speak German, and uh, we're over there frequently. I did not know that you also spoke German. I do speak German, not uh, brilliantly, but uh, good enough to get by. That's but great. Uh, it's it's interesting because I don't want to deviate from Germany. It's like there's no question that Germans are, you know, that some of the steps they've moved towards animal welfare, including this constitutional change, are very positive. But on the whole... When I go there and see the meat-eating culture that exists, I mean, my, my wife's family is in a rural area. They're agrarian people. They always mm -hmm. have been. And, you know, I can see the silos of the, the factory chicken farms. They're all over the place. So it's not, you know, there are some things they've done very well, but long way to go to. But anyway, sorry, that was a departure. Tell yeah, me about okay. Germany. Uh, so the German situation, this, this takes us back to the discussion we were having about the way that constitutional structures inform the meaning of these provisions. Uh, and the reason that there was a movement to include animals in the German constitution is that there were a number of protected human rights that could only be limited in circumstances where there was a competing constitutional value ah, at stake. So there were circumstances where uh, artistic or scientific enterprises were involving harm to animals and the constitution was obstructing any kind of animal protection in those spheres of social life mm. uh, without any sort of constitutional authority to inquire into the proportionality or how worth it the intrusion uh, into the rights would be in order to protect animal interests. Uh, and there were a number of cases that kind of were in the public eye that generated uh, an interest in getting a provision, an animal protection provision of some kind in the Constitution, just to allow legislation that balanced mm. those interests. Uh, and in so another... They added three words, just about. Right? Yes, <laughs> and the animals. I won't try to pronounce when it in German. There yeah. we go. <laughs> That's my they, German version. They added uh, three words to yeah. the Constitution. And it was, I you know, interestingly, another story where, you know minority targeting was part of what ended up bringing the final coalition together mm. uh, because there was a big case involving halal slaughter yeah. and the Christian right that had been opposing the amendment uh, came around because they realized that if they wanted to be able to intrude on uh, the religious freedom of a Muslim minority, they were going to need this constitutional protection provision as well. Uh, but in the result, the implementation of that provision has been, I think, a much happier story 
Uh, Germany is one of the few jurisdictions where farmed animals have actually been touched by the provision, uh, where sort of procedural mechanisms and independent uh, review by impartial agencies has been uh, created as part of the constitutional mechanism, for example, uh, when determining housing for uh, chickens and birds. So uh, it's been a situation where uh, a very complicated history has resulted in a provision that has really had a lot of purchase in terms of what it's uh, allowed animal advocates to accomplish and uh, just as a matter of their constitutional structure. Wow, it's fantastic. Yeah, I'm always interested. I, I haven't followed that stuff as closely as I would like to, but uh, I'm, I'm certainly enthused to hear that it's been positive. And, and I have heard a presentation uh, by a friend of mine uh, who's spoken on the Swiss Constitution, and, and obviously that's had quite a lot of impact in Switzerland as well. Absolutely. Yeah, that's uh, that's been another, you know, that's been a jurisdiction where a huge amount of scholarship has arisen around this too, and questions about uh, you know, the Swiss Constitution actually refers to the dignity of mm. animals, which is, uh, you know, a, a really surprising, surprising development when you see how much dignity language in other contexts it's often used to kind of distinguish human beings from animals. Uh, so it's a really creative and interesting turn that the jurisprudence there has taken. Well, it was useful because I know they they were able to link that to another campaign that's close to our heart here, which was the, the campaign against bestiality. And I know that uh, they were able to link that idea of dignity and, and suggesting that animals, because even the, the, the problem with bestiality at, at times, we've talked about it on this show many times, is that the, you can't always prove harm to the animals, which is the way mm -hmm. we normally conceive of an animal's interest. But in Switzerland, they were able to touch on the idea of dignity, and that sort of changed the nature of the conversation. Yeah, and I mean, you know, my own view on that is I, I'm less enthusiastic about uh, taking up a branch of analysis that takes our attention away from the experiences of animals. I think that there, that is an, uh, you know, we're kind of not yet at the point where our legal system has even acknowledged that harm is a problem, let alone uh, sort of this additive kind of uh, version of uh, biocentric, I think is what some of the Swiss scholars refer to it as, dignity. Uh, so I I worry a little bit about, you know, forgive the analogy, but putting the mm. cart before the horse mm. uh, in, in drawing on uh, these sort of post-harm analysis of the circumstances of animals. But I think uh, as sort of an intellectual matter, it's fascinating mm. to think about sort of parsing out, well, if we really were to take seriously animals as members of our communities, what would it mean to uh, think through something like dignity as having a wider ambit than just harm or freedom from harm? So just to finish up, um, in, in terms of, of your research, what, what are some of the lessons you think you've drawn from these? You, you talked at the beginning about all the different ways in which constitutions are used and the, the way they have different impacts on animals. What are, what are some of the key things that you can draw out of that? Uh, so I think I probably learned two lessons that sound like the opposite of each other, but are both true. Uh, one is that uh, there is value in stepping back and noticing a bunch of disparate stories that turn out to form a picture that you can learn something new about the world from. Uh, and the other 
that's its opposite is that you can't understand any of this without going up mm-hmm. very close. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that the closer you get to any of these stories, the less they look like any of the other stories. Uh, and so together, these kind of highlight the challenge of comparative work, that uh, it's useful to notice these interconnections and that the stories can learn, you know, any new jurisdiction going forward uh, that plans on implementing some kind of constitutional animal protection will absolutely have to attend to this history, uh, but that at the same time, these enactment histories and the way it's implemented are highly local, highly dependent on what's politically doable in a particular jurisdiction, what religious values are important in a particular place, uh, and that there's, you know, there's no... There's no skipping over the work of noticing where a pheno- how a phenomenon plugs into the more global picture, but there's also no skipping over the work of going deep and understanding what it means in its particular situation. Well, I look forward to following your work on this issue. I think we have a lot to learn uh, from all of these uh, inquiries that you're, you're undertaking. And most importantly, I want to thank you for coming in and talking with us on Paw and Order today. I hope to have you back soon. It was my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Heroes and Zeros. All right, now it's time for everybody's favorite part of the show. And Camille, I've heard from the people at the Grinning Goat. I'm pretty sure this is their favorite part of the show. Yes, it's time for Heroes and Zeros. And we've got a couple interesting ones for you today. So our hero is, yep, as always. And our hero this week is a little bit unexpected and uh, not an organization that's typically associated with doing animal law work per se, but it is the Margolis Family Foundation. Uh, That's an Ontario-based foundation by a fabulous, compassionate family which cares deeply about animal protection. They have given $1 million, Peter, to the University of Windsor's Canadian Centre for the Alternatives to Animal Methods. And this is a a centre set up, an academic centre through the university, that investigates scientific alternatives to using animal testing models, whether that be in vitro methods, um, skin culturing, organs on a chip, all these fantastic ways to get more reliable and obviously cruelty-free medical testing results. So they were set up uh, about a year ago, they actually launched, just over a year ago, and since then they've been attempting to get funding and scale up, and I understand this to be one of the first huge major investments in the uh, in the entity. So this is just astounding news, and I cannot wait to see where they go with it. Wow, that is fantastic. Uh, good, good news for everybody concerned. Certainly, great news for the for the center and uh, uh, for Chara, who has done so much hard work there to get it off the ground. Uh, Margolis Foundation. When you are ready to sponsor the um, Center Against Animal Cruelty, housed at the Faculty of Law in the University of Alberta, you give me a call. I'm I'm ready to go when you are. <laughs> someday, Peter. Someday. We can dream. And what have we got for a zero this month? Well, this is a very interesting zero because it's a story that literally broke at the end of our last show. I mean, we literally wrapped up recording the show and we heard about this story coming out of Edmonton and unfortunately we couldn't report it. So we are giving a zero today to Edmonton Animal Care and Control, an organization that is Amazingly, Camille, literally housed next door to the Edmonton Humane Society, which you will remember for being involved in an incident uh, last year when several uh, cats were left in a in a transport vehicle and uh, for 20, 22 days around there, right? wasn't it? That's right. 
Yeah, and they they lived, but you know, were obviously in a state of distress. Um, the Edmonton Animal Care and Control, we found out very recently, um, was involved in the killing of three cats. Uh, again, um, I'm not going to say intentionally. There's no evidence of that. It was I'm going to go with uh, accidentally, but in the transport of cats which I believe was done in plastic containers with air holes punched in the top. I mean, the story is kind of hard to believe. And I believe three cats were killed and many members of the Animal Care and Control organization, including the, the, the including Edmonton Animal Care and Control itself and the, uh, the uh, director of that agency were all charged with stress charges um, a couple of weeks ago. And Camille, there's some reasons to be disturbed about this story. Uh, indeed, there are. So these are provincial distress charges. Um, it's very, very serious matter. They, they face a hefty fine if convicted. Uh, what's particularly interesting about this to me, Peter, is you, you just mentioned that management has been charged with these offenses. And maybe we can just fill our listeners in on why that matters. Management, um, if the actions of an individual employee are at issue, management wouldn't necessarily typically be charged with an offense in relation to that unless there's a culture uh, an organizational problem uh, that runs much deeper than the actions of just one individual employee. So that, to me, is concerning. What else concerns you? Well, that was the first one I just wanted to talk about briefly because my understanding is when the Edmonton Humane Society was charged just as a counterpoint, um, the, the Humane Society itself was not charged. It was just the employees who obviously, you know, the investigator felt had acted in a way that was negligent and leaving the animals where they were. But this is a different situation. And what we see here is that there, again, we don't have a, enough detail about this case, which is, I think, one of the things that I'm most concerned about. Um, this case only came to light because because a whistleblower brought it to the, the attention of the CTV, and the CTV dug deep on uh, what was going on and found out that charges had been filed a couple of weeks ago. And uh, But Edmonton Animal Care Control, before that time, said absolutely nothing, carrying on business as usual. And we still are lacking some important information about the nature of what went wrong and the nature of you know what the allegations are designed to contain. And everybody's sort of say, staying hush-hush about this. That's right. And when it, when it became apparent that CTV was sniffing around and was going to do a story, they sort of cobbled together a hastily called press conference where they tried to put their own spin on this issue. But they did not really reveal any relevant or certainly noteworthy information to me about the details of the allegations. So who knew about this? When did it happen? What steps were taken in the immediate aftermath? Who did they report this to, if anyone? And why did it take this long for the public to receive any information about it? Yeah, I believe that these organizations represent the public, and I said so in a on an interview with CTV the day after this, occur, you know, when this was actually broken, and I was concerned about the fact that. You know, we, we, we just are, why should we be left to puzzle together what's actually happened? Uh, why should, you know, when, when, when they have an organization that's involved with animals, there should be a responsibility for them to come forward and bring this attention, bring this to the attention of the public and explain what steps have been taken to make sure it never happens again. Plus, of course, deal with any charges that need to coming out of it. But I mean, first and foremost, Camille, it's pretty disturbing that two of Edmonton's animal care organizations have been charged within a few weeks of each other. I mean, not a good look for the city. It's very concerning. It's very concerning. And I, I know I think at this point, what we urgently need is for somebody to step in and take a closer look and examine what's going on here that led to this culture of, of, of problems, if that in fact is the case. 
Yeah, definitely uh, not good. We'll try and keep you posted on these matters uh, going forward. But a big fat zero to Edmonton Animal Care and Control for these uh, unfortunate events. That's right. All right, that takes us to the end of our show. We are uh, 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 looking forward uh, to uh, hearing from you if you have any comments on our show. And, And in case it needs to be said again, Camille, you know, the disappointment I will feel if you do not go and get 15% off at the Grinning Goat, well, I just can't tell you how disappointed I'll be. I am planning myself, Camille, some really big Christmas shopping. So Grinning Goat, like, watch out. There's going to be like a whopping order you're going to have to fill uh, coming in the next couple of weeks. There's going to be two whopping orders because I'm doing exactly the same thing, Peter. And I hope you listeners take advantage of this special offer and do the same. Great talking to you, Camille. See you uh, next time on our next episode of Pawn Order. Bye for now. We'd like to thank all our listeners for tuning in. Please, a reminder, you can subscribe to the Pawn Order podcast using iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcatcher. And please, please leave us a rating and a review, which helps us reach more people. You can also share the podcast so that others have the opportunity to listen to it. And we always welcome donations to Animal Justice, which makes Paw and Order possible. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff, on Facebook at uh, Professor Sankoff, and at my website, petersankoff.com. And you can find me online on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, same handle on Instagram. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, thank you so much to our producer, Shannon Milling. See you next time on Order.